Well, I would ask you for the second time to open your Bible to the book of Ephesians. We'll give our attention primarily to verse 3. Though we're going to read a little more than that. Verse 3 is the beginning of a long, flowing thought of Paul as he writes, inspired of God. And as he writes this, it's as if the curtain regarding redemption is being pulled back just a bit. And we are privileged to see what is behind this great salvation of ours. We should be humbled to even hear what the Lord has made known to us in this verse. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. I'm going to stop reading there, but obviously this thought continues all the way down through verse 14. One way that we can think about this verse or these verses Verse 3 serves as the head or the summary for this entire paragraph. Verse 3 is the head of this great thought of Paul. Think of it as the mouth or the opening of a river. It begins just with a trickle. And by the time it ends, by the time we get down to verse 14... It's as if the beginning of this stream of grace has opened and it's opened and it's opened. And by the time we get down to verse 14, it is an immense and powerful river of grace. You can think of this verses 3 through 14, if this is helpful, as the Niagara Falls of redemption. There is so much power, so much sufficiency. So much awe and grandeur here to instruct our minds and to hold our hearts captive. And it really takes the rest of the book of Ephesians to unpack the things that are contained in these first 14 verses. But I don't think it's too much to say that it takes the rest of the book of Ephesians to unpack the third verse. Let me remind you of the context in which Paul writes this. He is in prison in Rome. A few verses out of the book of Acts helps us to place this in the timeline of his life. And let me just remind you, not only is he in prison in Rome, but his journey to Rome has been less than glorious. Shipwreck, being snake bitten, all of these types of things have befalled him. He finds himself under house arrest, yes, but also chained to a Roman guard, that's most likely why we have the glorious ending of this book of Ephesians. As he's looking on that Roman soldier, he equates each part of his armor to the armor of God and the glories of our salvation. In Acts, we're told that when Paul came to Rome, 
The centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, and Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And then later in Acts chapter 28, the ending of that book, we're told that Paul dwelt for two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. He was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, and no one was forbidding him. Even with those details, we can't lose sight of the fact that Paul was being held against his will, and it was very contrary to his nature. Reading from the book of Acts chapter 9 and forward, Paul was busy. He was traveling. He was preaching. He was debating in the synagogues. He was doing all of these things. He was in Mars Hill at Athens declaring God to be the one true God. But yet now he finds himself confined, but with great freedom to write. And he writes these prison epistles, what we call the prison epistles to the Ephesian church, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, to Timothy and to Titus and to his friend Philemon. It's not until the end of the book. The sixth chapter, verses 19 and 20, that Paul says anything about himself in regard to being imprisoned. And even there, what he asks for is not deliverance. He's only asking that utterance be given him, that he may open his mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which he was an ambassador in chains. He's asking for prayer that he may speak boldly as he ought to speak. How unlike me and how unlike you, perhaps, was this man? I'm not so sure that in my immaturity I might not have started this letter by saying, please pray for me. I'm in prison in Rome. I need help. Please pray that the Lord would deliver me just like he delivered Peter. You remember how Peter was held steadfast in the prison. He was awakened by an angel. The doors were open. The chains were loose. This is what I'm asking. Please pray these things for me. But it's as if that is not even on his mind. He has had such great opportunity to work for the gospel among the centurions in Rome. Some of them were being converted. The gospel had made great inroads. He had all of this opportunity to write. And he's just praying for boldness in it. So it's no wonder that he begins the third verse, not with blaming God for his predicament, but for blessing God for the grace that he has given. So before we begin to unpack verse three, and I'm not really using that as a cliche, there is much to unpack out of verse three. I want you to see in these first 14 verses, far from being downcast and in despair, Paul has written, inspired the Spirit, one of the greatest sections in all of your Bible about your salvation, the greatness of it, and the activity of the Trinity in it. He speaks of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in these first 14 verses. And I want to show you that before we move back up to verse 3. The first section or the first part of this in verses 3 to 6 Notice how Paul exalts God the Father who has blessed with every spiritual blessing. 
In verse 4, it says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So what Paul is saying there is that our salvation, first and foremost, initiated in the mind and heart of God before the world even began. And the contemplation of that leads him for the first time in this larger paragraph to praise the Lord by saying to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then he moves in the seventh verse down through verse 11, excuse me, verse 12. He begins to extol and praise the person of Jesus Christ in our salvation. He says in him we have redemption through his blood, through the blood of the son of God. We have forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth in him. In him we also have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. The Father is to receive praise. The Son is to receive praise. And the Spirit in verses 13 through 14 In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. To the praise of the Father, to the praise of the Son, to the praise of the Spirit. There is a great newer hymn written by D.A. Carson. Some of you will recognize that name as as one of the preeminent contemporary theologians of our day. He has written the words to the hymn, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's my hope and prayer that we can learn and sing that song in the near future because it's so helpful. It reiterates the words of The scripture here showing us that everything about our redemption from the father's planning it in eternity past to the son's carrying it out in time to the spirit making application of it to us is all to the praise of the glory of his grace. Do you see who is in central focus here? Do you see who is behind everything and for whom all things have been done and to whom all praise is to be given? It's God the Father working through the Son by the Spirit. And you and I as believers are the great beneficiaries of what he has done. Salvation begins with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Salvation is of the Lord in every sense. We stand as those that have been brought in, adopted, taken into his family, 
given a new song to sing, given a new heart from which this song springs. And so if you go back to the third verse, notice this first word of the third verse, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the proper response to those that have been drawn out of their sin and placed upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. This word is interesting. It's the word where we, its original form is where we get our English word eulogize. You go to a funeral, most often someone gives a eulogy. That eulogy is a good word spoken about whomever has deceased. And so while it sounds strange, it's true to the text to say here that Paul is eulogizing God the Father. He is speaking well of him. This word in English is familiar to us. We read it in the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of the Beatitudes, those blessed statements. Blessed is the man who does this and this and this and these characteristics comprise his life. But these are two totally different words in the original language. As it stands here in verse 3, this word is always used in the New Testament to reference praise that is to be directed unto the Lord. It's always used in reference to God who alone is worthy of being praised or, to be more literal, to God who alone is worthy of being well spoken of. It's also the thought behind Psalm 103 where we're told in those first two verses to bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his Benefits. We live in a world that curses the name of our gracious God. We live in a world where the name of God is to be taken as a byword. His name is profaned and mocked. It is our special privilege as the redeemed of God and our responsibility to praise, laud, and magnify and bless the name of our God who has so wonderfully worked on our behalf. God forbid that we let that work go undone. The world does not praise God in this fashion because they know nothing of his salvation. But yet that's the great work of evangelism. To go and declare, to proclaim the message of the gospel, to add another voice to the choir that speaks well of God the Father. That praises him and gives him his due right in redeeming us out of our sinfulness. The father of our Lord Jesus Christ stands at the head of this river of grace. He is there directing its course. He is there having authored this plan. We speak much of Jesus and we should. We speak much of the Spirit of God and we should. We should speak just as much and exalt and praise God the Father for sending the Son and for the Father and the Son in sending His Spirit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
What has he done for us? What has he done that has rendered him worthy of such high praise and to be so well spoken of? Well, the verse ends by saying he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's the same word used the second time in this verse. We are to bless and to speak well of God. Notice because he has blessed us. Meaning that he has spoken well of us. Not as he viewed us in our sin, but as he sees us in Christ. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now it's certainly true that the Lord pours out blessings upon us as his people in the temporal realm. He gives us good gifts. The scriptures tell us, James writes, that every good and perfect gift has come down from him, the father of lights. In whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Every good thing you receive in this life is a good gift from your Father in heaven. And as true as that is, that's not what is in view here. What's in view here is the spiritual blessings that have come to you and to me and all believers in the heavenly places in Christ. And notice the tense of the, of the wording who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It is true to say that you and I are as blessed as we will ever be right now. We are as blessed as we will ever be in Christ, but yet we have not yet fully recognized that. The reason is because we now are those that live in two realms, in two spheres. We are those that are living Positionally in Christ, we have been as blessed as we will ever be, but yet we are still living in the sphere or the realm of this world. We still battle against sin, but that doesn't negate the spiritual truth of what is being said here. God the Father has blessed us with every. Notice that word. In some of your translations, it's the word all. God has not withheld from you or from me any spiritual blessing at all. We have every spiritual blessing already. This speaks of our position as being in Christ. We are as holy as we will ever be positionally. But progressively, in the realm of sanctification, we have much work to do to catch up with our position. That's where we find ourselves in this area of being further and more sanctified. What we, what we read all the way down through verse 14 and really the rest of the book of Ephesians discloses what these blessings are. So if we ask the question of this, and we should, this is where we squeeze all of the grace and all of the great 
knowledge that God has given us out of these verses, if we were to ask the question, what are these blessings? We've been given every spiritual blessing. What are they? Suffice it to say, we can sum it up. God has taken us from being dead in our sins, Ephesians 2, all the way now to the possibility of being filled with all the fullness of God, verse 14 of chapter 3. That's every spiritual blessing. Awakening us while we were dead in sin to the point now that we not only embrace Christ, but we have been given the very real possibility of knowing God the Father in all of his fullness. That's every spiritual blessing. And this is not just the thought of Paul. Peter writes very much the same thing in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 6. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. These are the spiritual blessings that are just beginning to unfold in our hearts and in our minds in this life that we will know more fully in the next. God has not shorted us a thing in the realm of spiritual blessings. He has opened his hand and given to you and me every one of them. The degree that we realize that, the degree that we embrace that, is where we have most room to grow. But notice how specific these blessings have come to us. We're to bless and to praise and to speak well of God, to give him all praise and glory because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So let's deal with the end of that first, the person of these blessings. These blessings come into our life through Jesus Christ alone. There are no other spiritual blessings that come into the life of a believer or into any person, redeemed or unredeemed, that do not come through Christ. You know, we're told in another place that there is no other name under heaven by which we are saved. The literal translation of that is there is no second name by which we are saved. There is only one name. And that name is Jesus Christ. But then we have this peculiar part of this verse that tells us where these spiritual blessings of ours reside, where we have been the most greatly blessed already by God, our father in and through Christ. Paul says we have been blessed in the heavenly places. And whether you realize it or not, this is one of the themes of the book of Ephesians. Five times in the book of Ephesians, this phrase, in the heavenly places, is referenced. I want to point each one of those five out to you and show you how Paul is using them. We see the first here in the third verse as being the realm of our blessing in heavenly places. But if you look down just a bit into the 20th verse of chapter 1... What you read there, I'm going to back up to verse 18. 
This is in the middle of Paul's prayer. He says that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So we can make this correlation. The realm of our spiritual blessings now equates to where Christ is right now. He is seated at God's right hand. The book of Acts opens with his ascension back into heaven. But not only his ascension, his session. The fact that he is now seated at the right hand of God. This is where you and I also have taken a seat because of our union with Christ. I can say that because Paul says that in the sixth verse of chapter 2 using the same words. If you go to the fourth verse of chapter 2. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice that we did not ascend this hill on our own. I remind you of what we looked at a couple of weeks ago out of Colossians chapter 1. That we have been translated. We have been moved by the grace and the power of God from one sphere of darkness to the sphere of the Son of His love. Into great light. And as we read that sixth verse again. How great it sounds in our ears. That we have been raised up together. And made to sit together. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just as surely as the resurrected kingly Christ sits. At the father's right hand. You and I spiritually speaking. Because of these blessings he has given us. Are seated there along with him. And one glorious day, we will sit there with him, reigning with him throughout all eternity. That's the greatness of how God has blessed you. That's the greatness of how he has blessed me. And why Paul begins this thought by saying, oh, speak well of him. There are not words too lofty. For our praise of him. There is not time. In our day really to speak of the goodness of God. That he has expressed to us in Christ Jesus. But there's two more times in this. Book or this epistle that Paul uses this phrase. Not only is it the realm of our blessing now. Not only is it where Christ is seated now. Not only is it surely where we are seated in the heavenly places with him now. And more fully recognizing it later. But in the third chapter in the tenth verse. Paul introduces us into the responsibility and privilege of the church on earth. Making all of this known. In verse 10, we're we're catching into the middle of a thought, but he says, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So if you take that verse now as Christ's people on earth. This is the unique mystery of what Paul calls Christ and his church in the fifth chapter. We are given the great privilege, and yes, it's a responsibility to preach and proclaim the manifold wisdom of God as his bride, as his church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. What a high calling and privilege the Lord has given us that he has already blessed us with. But yet there's one more place where he uses this phrase. It's in the sixth chapter all the way over into verse 12 where he begins to talk about the armor of God, how we are to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. Where are they? In the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. What Paul, I think, is getting across to us in some fashion or another is that our salvation in Christ, our privilege of preaching the gospel here and now, our future seat along with Christ is all otherworldly. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The full beneficiaries and recipients of all the goodness of God. Is it any wonder why in contemplating this, Paul loses sight of his imprisonment? That he uses his imprisonment as a sounding board to do the very things that he's encouraging us to do. To make the manifold wisdom of God Known, And by the time we get over to that sixth chapter and Paul pulls the curtain back even further upon what we call the spiritual sphere or the spiritual warfare that is taking place, we realize that we aren't wrestling with men. We aren't wrestling with women. We're wrestling against what he calls the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. And yet even there, there is this precursor, if you want to call it, to who will be the ultimate victor. Because we, by God, through Christ, as applied by the Spirit, have already been the recipients of every spiritual blessing. We're preaching against the host of darkness now. Chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 10. And ultimately, one day in the end, this spiritual host of wickedness will be put by our God and Father under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ once and for all. So as we begin to look at this great paragraph or this great sentence in Ephesians, notice the call to praise God. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is, I think, as an undertone of all of this, the more we know of him, the greater we will praise him. The more we know about our Father in heaven, who has worked for us in and through his Son, by his Spirit, the more we know of him, then our praise will rise correspondingly. One of the blights on us as the people of God is that very often we have to be worked into the frame of mind and heart to praise the Lord. When in reality, when we understand all that God has done, our heart should be so full. Our minds should be so full and renewed and sharp that when we meet together, we don't need the lights dimmed. We don't need the smoke from the stage. We don't need the this or the that. But what is in our hearts is going to come out regardless. The more we know of him, the more we will be fit and prepared to praise him. And nothing is going to stand in our way. We'd meet in a hut if we had to. People are doing that right now. We'd meet in the heat or in the cold, whatever it may be, under severe persecution, under real threat of our lives. Because we must speak well of this God who has been so merciful to us in Jesus Christ. We'll never outgrow the call to do what Paul says to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's repeated three times over to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Let me ask you a question as I'm drawing to a close. Why has God saved you? Why has God saved me? To the praise of his glory. Do I reap innumerable benefits from that? Of course. Verse 3 tells us we've received every or all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. But we can't lose sight of the order of the third verse. God has been active on our parts. It would be right and true for us to say we bless and praise God for who he is. That's certainly an aspect of our worship as his people. We extol him for his greatness, his majesty, as he sits altogether distinct and separate from us. But that's not the only reason why we're called to praise him. Notice the third verse. We bless him because of his actively blessing us. It's right and true that he is God above all. God Almighty, who alone sits in the heavens, doing whatever he pleases. 
All kingdoms, nations, authorities, governments are under him. And no government exists that he hasn't allowed or put into place. We worship him for his majesty, yes. But notice also the closeness and the intimacy. We worship him because he has opened his hand to us in Christ and given us what we could have never gotten for ourselves. How good is he? How merciful is he? When you read this verse, it's true of all the people of God of all time. But here is, here is my encouragement to you. And it's not wrong to see this verse as applying to you as an individual. You know you better than anyone else. You know what resides in your heart. You know those things that no other person alive, not even the closest ones to you, know about you. You know the depth of sin that the Lord has drawn you out of. And if we were to take this verse and we were to make it apply individually, blessed be the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose me in him before the foundation of the world. Doesn't your heart just swell up with gratitude and thanksgiving to him? Because you know you better than anyone, but God knows you better than you know you. And yet... In his grace and mercy, he has lavished this love upon you in Christ in spite of it all. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And doesn't that make what Christ himself has done, beginning in the seventh verse, all the more glorious? We have redemption through his blood. Christ shed his blood for our salvation. You know, he sang a little earlier the words, it was my sin that held him there. There's truth in that. There's an element of truth there. But we can go, we can do better than that. It wasn't just my sin that held him there. It was the eternal plan and purpose of God. It was the love of Christ that held him there. Was he making atonement for my sin? Yes. But let's go back to the beginning. Why was Christ on that cross in the first place? For my sin? Yes. Go back even further than that. Because of the eternal counsels of God. To work out and to author a plan of salvation for those who had fallen into sin. We're going to see in coming weeks that this was not a response to man's sinfulness. I realize there's much thought that would lend itself to that. The plan of redemption did not spring into being after mankind fell. The plan of redemption, according to verse 4, began before the foundation of the world. God did not wring his hands and say, Oh my, what am I going to do now? This creation that I have made in my own image has fallen into sin. 
way before the heaven. Way before in the eternal counsels of God, he determined and the son submitted. They covenanted together to redeem a people to the praise of the glory of his grace. What a gospel. What good news we have to preach. I'm going to close by giving you a quote of Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is how he ends three sermons. I gave you one sermon on Ephesians 3. He has three in his compilation of sermons. This is how he ends the third sermon. He says, The greatest tragedy in the world is that the church... Instead of preaching her own true message concerning Christ. Is far too often preaching an earthly, human, and carnal message. Well, God helping us. We'll preach, trumpet, and bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Amen. Let me pray and then we'll observe communion. Our Father, we come to you. Lord, with every every faculty that you have given us. With our voice. With our mind. With our emotion. Lord, we bless you for what you have done for us in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us every spiritual blessing even now, residing there in the heavenly places. And these have come to us only and solely in the person of Jesus Christ. Our Lord, we thank you for shedding your blood. We thank you for giving up your spirit. We thank you for being raised and even active in raising yourself from the grave. We're thankful for this symbolism of communion that you have given to your church to commemorate the shedding of your blood, the breaking of your body, and how we as your church by faith are to To feed upon what you have done. We know that this is an ordinance that you have established for us. That is to continue to the end until your return. So Father we pray this morning that you would. Bless us with the richness. Of its symbolism. That we would indeed see Christ again. Hanging upon the tree, shedding his blood for us, but yet full well knowing that the grave could not hold him. That he conquered not only sin, but death and the grave on our behalf. So it's with great joy. It's with great anticipation that we observe this supper. And we do so proclaiming or showing forth his death again until he comes in glory. We do it in his name. We do it for his sake. Amen.